join us in a world where you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Sit back as we discuss hard lessons from the best and brightest the personal defense and competition shooting industry has to offer. Let us help you help yourself, no matter where you are on your personal path. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Centurion Arms. Hard use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. Now here's your host, John Johnson. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. I'm your host, John Johnson. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at ballisticradio.com and get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, class announcements, other things at facebook.com slash ballisticradio, at least while we're still there. Uh, <laughs> hey, Joe. Don't say that. Oh, man. I'd be bummed. I, uh, I'd i be bummed. So, But how are you doing? I'm cold, but I'm doing okay. I dress I dress much more warmly this time. I don't know if you've noticed. I'd see that. But so I made the mistake. I've gotten to the last twelve months have been probably really bad for well, the last ten months have been really bad for my natural tendencies because I've always been sort of uh more casual than I probably should be. And then when you put me in a situation where I don't leave my house and I get to wear pajamas, and then you put me in a situation where Filster has this amazing new product that makes it very easy to carry a gun in your pajamas, now I just exist in pajamas. And and last time I was in the studio, I made the mistake of recording essentially in house slippers without socks, not realizing right. that it would be 59 degrees in the studio. So, and, and I'm exaggerating. It wasn't quite that cold. It was like 62. Yeah, a balmy 62, right? But, hey, I am super excited because one of my very, very favorite violence nerds is joining us on the show again. It is it is the amazing, the incomparable, the massively beautiful and intelligent John Hearn. John, how's it going? Wow, that, that, that's quite the introduction. Is that true that it comes from a man that's wearing the hoodie, footy pajamas? No, not right now, though I do have a picture of myself in a... I'm not sure if it's a unicorn onesie or a pegasi onesie. I mean, it's got a unicorn horn, but there are also wings. So I, I guess that'd be a pegasus, right? But Something I mean, like that. I, it's it's on my premium snap. You you guys just slide into my DMs and and I'll send you the link. Dear God, excellent! I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, this has already gone amazingly off the rails, which is so I just. <laughs> I recorded a show, it'll be last week for, for the people listening, but for me it was five minutes ago, where I was incredibly professional because it's someone that I know, but I wouldn't say that we are super well acquainted or that that we are super good friends. Not that I wouldn't want to be super good friends with this person, but we're just not there yet. Fast forward, and you know, I consider you one of my very good friends in all of this, We've taught together before. We have. You've bought me cheese and allowed me to stay in your house. So I am just all sorts of probably way more comfortable than I should be right now. And clearly, it's coming out in the episode. So, but for, for and, and no alcohol is involved yet. So that's what makes hey, it even worse. We have no excuses. You don't know what I've been doing this morning. It's uh, fair, fair enough. That's hey. the The reason I like brunch so much is that it becomes socially acceptable to to drink. Like early in the day, 
And people are going to listen to this and be like, did he just say that? I'm like, yes, I did. Yes, I did. But for those that don't know who you are or why you are so incredibly interesting, to me at least, and quite a few other people, if uh, I'm one to judge, who are you and what do you do? So uh, I've kind of had this dual career track going on for a while. Uh, by profession, I guess my day job, for lack of a better word, is I've been a law enforcement officer, started out in 92 or so. So I've seen a lot of stuff on that side of the house, done a lot of training, teaching, all that kind of stuff on that side. I've also been involved in the private firearms training sector since about 2001. But uh, in addition to that, I'm just a huge nerd. I can dig into research. I can go to the library and spend hours just uh, instead of surfing the web, just going to articles, finding good references, going from here to there. And uh, at least at this point, I still have pretty good recall on all that material. So I can generally burst out with the, uh, the nerd facts pretty quickly on a variety of topics that only interest a small portion of the population. Well, I'm trying to create a larger portion of the population that's interested in that sort of thing, but I, I do concur. We occasionally get into the weeds on stuff that even is surprising to me. So I'm going to make a generalized statement, and I expect that at least a part of it will probably need correcting from you, and I welcome that. But then I, I want to sort of tie it back into a historical reference and then get your thoughts all together. So this will be meandering as many of my questions are, but today in 2021, we seem to have a pretty good understanding that having performance, some way to track performance, getting both hands on the gun, the gun up in the, the eye target line and essentially overlearning certain things tends to result in successful gunfighters, self-defenders, honey wolf, badger, sheepdog, whatever your preferred nomenclature is. The nomenclature is not necessarily that important. We, we seem to have a pretty good idea of that in 2021. Now... Oddly, uh, do you agree with that general premise just before we get further? Oh, absolutely. I would say those statements are my bread and butter. Perfect. Historically, and this part is interesting to me because I am a student of history and I too like to go find old books and dig through them. Historically, we knew this at least 100 years ago. It seems to me. Would you say that that general statement is mostly accurate? Well, I would say there was a, a portion of the population that knew and understood this. Now, whether it was um, co- wide common knowledge, I don't know if I could say another. But, you know, there's certainly been books, you know, shooting by uh, uh, Fitzgerald had, yep. was published around 1930 or so. And, I mean, he's, he's shooting for what most of us would recognize as a classic Weaver stance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that some of the stuff is just we were limited by the equipment of the times, sites that weren't readily visible, that sort of a thing. Um, you know, if, you, if you want to go down the historical bunny trail, you know, Charles Askin spent an incredible amount of time trying to figure out low-light solutions um, to solve the problems we we're trying to solve today. Uh, he was limited by the technology he had in the day. So I think one of his, if I remember correctly, one of his better solutions was to tie a white rag around the barrel of his semi-automatic shotgun 
and lay waste to people with that. And let's be honest, he did lay a lot of waste with that, you know, that sort of a system. But again, you know, had he had that man had an aim point on that shotgun, he would have loved it. You know, had he had a set of tritium night sights, he would have loved it. So while we had the knowledge, I don't think we necessarily had the technology to fully support it. Right. So the, and, and you, 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 you said a thing where it might not have been as widespread back then. I would actually argue it's still not widespread today because you know this as well as I do. You can make statements like that, and there's going to be a certain portion of our population that is going to argue and talk about you can't see the sights under... And I, I don't want to get into that, but I guess... <clears throat> Do you, do you think that the, that intervening time period, so that 100 years or so, where they might have known the stuff back then, or at least a small portion of the population did, but they were limited by technology, fast forward to now, like, what about the intervening time? Is that all just te- technological limitations, or is what, what has sort of muddied the water there? Or why is this oh. a thing that is still you know, being fought over, I guess. Okay, well, actually, uh, this is a great historical nerd question. So you, you, you threw me a softball, and, and let's see what I can do with it here. So it was a combination, I would say, of two factors. Number one, a uh, guy by the name of Jelly Bryce. Jelly Bryce was a Oklahoma policeman who was, when the FBI decided to implement their firearms program, uh, J. Edgar Hoover went out of his way to find uh, famous gunfighters of the era to train his people. And almost, you know, basically the FBI tried to teach everybody to shoot like Jelly Bryce. That was an interesting concept, except Jelly Bryce had incredible sea speed. And by sea speed, I mean he could actually see his bullets in flight, which is human physically possible, but it's way, way, way out there in the minority. And what you can do as far as shooting technique and stance and stuff like that, if you can see your bullets in flight and adjust them accordingly, is fundamentally different than what the, the vast majority of us with you know, more normal eyesight might be able to do. So you know, we went through this long period of time where we tried to, because the FBI propagated so much of this stuff, we tried to teach everybody to shoot like Jelly Bryce, which was you know, a classic you know, low-crouch, point-shooting, support hand over the heart to protect it from bullets uh, sort of situation. The other historical factor that drove that was, you know, we learned all this stuff, the hard lessons in the 20s and the 30s, and then we have a period of unprecedented peace. So, you know, starting with the, you know, World War One, I'm sorry, World War Two in 1941, uh, all the men of age to commit crime go overseas to fight. So they, we had this period of peace from say 1941 to the very late 60s, and it would not be uncommon for a police officer to go his entire career without drawing his gun because everything was so good. So all those older gunfighters that might have been able to properly teach us to bring the gun up to eye level, um, number one, that information had been supplanted by the FBI, plus there was no need uh, for that information because things had been so calm. That, you know, if you look at the uh, officers killed by year, uh, we, we went through you know, losing a very, very small number of officers, to this huge spike in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, which really got us the, the modern officer, officer safety movement. So it was a combination of, I would say, primarily those two factors of, of Jelly Bryce and a very, very long piece, uh, period of peace that didn't require those kind of skills that, that got us where we are today. Well, and I've got more questions about that, but we are already to the first break 
And I guarantee this is going to be a really quick episode because I am super excited about it, and I know you are too, and that seems to be how the theory of relativity works. But anyway, we're talking with John Hearn. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at Easy Day Prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. A legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories as well as the EDC-X9 series of firearms, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match-grade accuracy, superior ergonomics and concealability with modern service pistol capacity as well as reliability at wilsoncombat.com. So we're talking with John Hearn, and you guys are about to hear two nerds pretend like you're not listening. And it's going to be awesome. So you said before the break that essentially the two contributing factors to the thing that I'm talking about or asking about was the influence of Jelly Bryce and then this long period of peace where the knowledge just wasn't needed, right? So people kind of forgot the lessons that have been learned and paid for in sweat, blood, and tears. So I don't usually do this, but this might be fun. If Jelly Bryce had not been the man selected for that particular job, and let's say it had been someone like Charles Askins, and, you know, by all accounts, he was a horrible human being. So I'm not, I'm not trying to talk about, you know, he, the, the title of his book was Unrepentant Sinner, right? And, you know, he meant it. So I'm not talking about him as a human. I'm talking about him as a, you know, firearms trainer, gunfighter, what, whatever moniker you want to give that man, right? Let's say it had been someone like Charles Askins that had been selected for the FBI. What do you think things would look like now? Or what do you think would have been done differently? A historical what if, if, so, if, if you yeah, don't mind. So, absolutely. so I throw out a couple of things there. Number one, that whole idea of um, you know, the, the crouching hip shooting was fairly, you know, that was not an uncommon technique that was you know, popularized. Um, so I think it would have had some um, momentum to it. It just wouldn't have been as much. Um, the thing to remember um, is that people did not appreciate the speed at which you could get the gun to, to uh, you know, two hands on the gun and bring it to eye level. I don't know if it's just an apocryphal tale, but I don't think it is. But, you know, Bill Jordan, um, who was this Texas lawman, huge point shooter. You can still, you know, Google his name or I guess YouTube his name, and you can see him doing these incredible feats of point shooting. Well, supposedly he went and saw his first Ipsic match back when they were still Ipsic, and he was stunned. He's like, my God, we never knew you could do that that fast. And it was almost like, you know, he had spent his entire life, you know, learning to shoot a particular way, only to realize toward the end that, oh, wow, we got a lot of that stuff wrong. Had we known that you could get two hands on the gun and get it up to eye level that quickly, right, um, they would have probably done that. I think it really took um, Jeff Coop and the Southwest Combat Pistol League to really, really put that together. Um, so, you know, Cooper really showed and Cooper and the people he collected around him, I guess to say, really showed that was possible. So as an example of that, you know, they really were starting to dial that in in the 50s and the 60s. If you read Cooper's writings, uh, 
you can see him. There's a in one of his books from the '60s. He's like, "Hey, we're experimenting with this thing we might have discovered called two-handed eye-level shooting, and it seems to hold a lot of promise." And the next book he writes is like, "Oh my goodness, this is the best thing ever." So I think it took Cooper really breaking that down and figuring out how to teach it effectively. Um, if you look at the Southwest Combat Pistol League, he attracted a lot of smart people. Jeff Cooper was a smart man, but he surrounded himself by even smarter people. Uh, I think that's something that my good friend Tom Givens has done, um, if I could just throw that out there shamelessly. Sure. But, uh, you know, he, uh, when they, once they had the, the technique developed, they thought it would take about five years to teach somebody to do it. Well, teaching some, you know, taking five years to teach someone to shoot effectively doesn't work. Uh, there was a gentleman that uh, trained with them. I think his name was John Plon. He had a background in physiology and uh, exercise. And he's like, no, there, this is not going to take five years to teach somebody. What you do is you, you know, break it up into in incremental steps. And it was really Plon that was able to you know, take the, what they had learned at the Southwest Combat Pistol League, break it down so that it could be taught very quickly to the general population. So it was a combination of these historical figures, you know, Jelly Bryce kind of slowing everything down, tranquility, um, not understanding what was physically possible until somebody showed them, you know, it took, you know, uh, them actually doing it to make anybody believe it. Because uh, even if you go back to Fitzgerald's book, you know, he talks about two-handed eye-level shooting as something that you did once you got past, you know, seven yards and you had the time. What we now know is that it probably takes longer to draw the gun, get it to a you know a kinesthetic index, and fire around, then it does simply get the gun up to eye level, especially if you practice that. So I think you know uh, I think we wouldn't have been entrenched. I think that Cooper's teachings would have probably developed more quickly because again Cooper was very very hung up in this whole point shooting thing uh, before his experiments. You know as you see him trying to change in the in the late sixties. Um, just as a nerddom kind of thing is that people don't realize is that Jeff Cooper himself was an incredible point shooter. Um, he could do it. it. It wasn't a matter of him discarding something that didn't work. His whole problem was it was a skill that was very, very difficult to teach. Uh, as I recall from my gun sight history, that was something that he finally reserved for the 599 class, which is kind of like the, the finishing school for gunmen. But I, I have friends that were there and saw this. You know, he could, you could put a one-by-two in the ground. And at seven yards, Cooper could reliably, or I say reliably 100%, hit that one-by-two 100% of the time. So it wasn't that Cooper couldn't point shoot it's just that from an efficiency getting people up to speed most effectively kind of a guaranteeing your hits perspective you know it, it took this process and you know this this discarding of the obsession with the point shooting um to get us to where we were well so let me ask so we've got pictures of like the jedbergs right and they're using essentially what looks like 19 19- 80s 1990s style iso like shooting stance right and where did the, so where did that come from as far as and why was it not propagated further so i can't speak to their particular training and for the the people that are as nerdy as john and i the jet burrows were a group under the british oss from World War II, and there's a very famous picture of a bunch of them practicing what we could all recognize as uh, two-handed eye-level shooting. Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank right now. They were trained fairly extensively by the guys that came out of Shanghai, and I'm, I apologize in advance. I'm drawing a- Applegate and Fairburn. Um, thank you. They were trained completely by those, right? 
And if you look at those programs, my suspicion is, is again, they tended to teach point shooting things for things that were, say, seven-yard problems uh, and in, and then extended the gun up to eye level. Because the one thing you don't see in that picture with the Jed Burrows is how far away those targets were. So I think the, the, the big break, you know, historically was, you know, um, kind of what, uh, you know, I, I would say Tom Givens said it best, which was, unless you can touch the guy, get two hands on the gun and bring it up to eye level. Mm-hmm. So I think it was at the point at which we introduced two-handed eye-level shooting that really was a significant change, which is, you know, it became our default instead of something you fall back to if you had distance. So you talked about in the first segment sort of the technological limitations and how that can play into things. You, you've got a guy like Charles Haskins that's filling in a lot of people in low-light conditions and just doesn't have the things that he would like to have to make that more more better, right? Do you think that as far as the the two-handed eye-level shooting goes, the length of time that it took for us to get there was somewhat influenced by the technology, either via sighting systems or even carry methods of the day? Well, I think it was a combination of things. I mean, you mentioned carry holsters. A lot of the the holsters that day were actually set up to accommodate that FBI kind of draw where literally the, the, the holster would rotate on the belt to facilitate that, that whipping action they used. And um, there were some technological solutions out there. Um, the problem was they weren't widely distributed. So there was a series of very famous gunsmiths that were all based out in California. Uh, King's Police Supply, I think, was the name of one of them. But there was this pool of people who could put good sights on guns, right? There were some interesting solutions. They would put little mirrors at the bottom of the front sight to collect sight, uh, to collect light and throw it on your front sight. Um, you know, you could actually, my understanding is you could actually order a Colt from the factory with a one-eighth inch front sight. Well, one-eighth inch is about .125, which a lot of us like to shoot for a front sight. So the problem was the technology was out there, but most people didn't appreciate it, and it was harder to get to. I mean, I can hop on Amazon now and order a set of Trigicon HD XRs, and they're going to be here in two days, and they're great sites. Uh, that ease of ordering, you know, I think was something that was a substantial obstacle to getting this stuff implemented. We've got about a minute left in this segment, and I have a follow-up question, but then it's not going to work out well. So let's do this. I'll just go to break a tiny bit early, and then I'll ask my question. Right now, we're talking with John Hearn. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment brought to you by BigTexOutdoors.com. BigTexOutdoors.com is the best place for you to find all of your everyday carry needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the Candela from ModLite at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and, well, now you need an optic on your carry gun. BigTexOutdoors.com has those and they don't judge much. Glock accessories, yes, fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, BigTexOutdoors.com has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike and you'll like Ike too. Visit BigTexOutdoors.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So we're talking with John Hearn about all sorts of nerdery, and you were sort of discussing the ease of access to certain things, specifically when we're talking about like 
technology and advances and stuff like that. And it strikes me that one of the things that oftentimes inside of our own community is decried is, is like the internet, right? The internet is this terrible place and, you know, all the, it's kind of like, it's a silly place. We shouldn't go there. Right. And it's, it occurs to me that for as much as the internet has negatively impacted certain aspects of life, that it's actually done more than almost anything to usher us into this golden age of training that we happen to be in right now. What what are your what are your thoughts? Well, I think that the uh, the internet is a huge PA system. So the guys that are yelling stupid stuff, they get to yell their stupid stuff louder, right? And the guys that are yelling smart stuff tend to get to yell their stuff louder. What I would say is that. Um, Gun knowledge overall on the internet is probably not great, but you can go to some certain pockets where you know, you know, legit subject matter experts share their information. You know, um, there are places like that. I don't want to tell you what those are because then everybody would go there and ruin them as well. But you know, <laughs> I think the internet has basically been a, has been a huge impact on this stuff because the smart people can get together and share ideas and also not be necessarily be shouted down by Cleetai uh, and his brother. Um, Bubba, that, uh, you know, really don't know what they're talking about. Well, that, that's an interesting sort of path to traipse down. And let me ask you this. Let, let's look at some of the, I guess, good idea, fairy levels of knowledge that exist currently. So things that you and I would look at and go, that's not a great idea. Would you say that the quality of not great ideas has improved compared to 70 years ago? So, like, has has the bottom been raised at least, or is it just as bad as it, as it's always been? I think that what you see, what we think of as the bottom, right, it just tends to be the same stuff that gets recycled over and over again. So I don't think necessarily the arguments themselves have really changed all that much. What happens is, you know, people trumpet them, you know, you know say how great this thing is, we try it, realize that was stupid, and it goes away for 10 or 15 years. And then somebody else, you know, digs out, you know, my great-grandfather did World War II combatives, and this is how they fought, this is how they did all this other kind of stuff, and without any kind of historical context of why that stuff was abandoned. You know, that stuff was, was tried very thoroughly. It was rejected by very, very smart people. But because, you know, they probably haven't sat down and read any of the books from the opposing viewpoint, you know, they've only read... Um, Sykes and Fairbane, that kind of stuff, or, or and, and also appreciate the fact that you know Sykes and Fairbane had almost no training time with these folks, right? So the techniques that I would, you know, that you're going to use for somebody that's going to get to fire, you know, 50 rounds a year, kind of a thing, that's going to limit what you can implement, right? So I, I think that the, what we're seeing, as far as the less than stellar arguments, just tend to be garbage that gets recycled. Uh, the only thing the Internet age does is that you can produce higher quality, higher quality videos. Um, I don't know, maybe you can speed the videos up to make your performance look better than it might have otherwise actually been. Okay. So, you know, the, 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 uh, the Internet has been kind of bad for that. But um, just being able to sit down and talk to smart people, share ideas um, in a uh, gentlemanly manner, for lack of a better word, uh, I think that has been a huge boon. You know, we, we've pretty much figured out what works to a large degree. And you can either choose to hang out with people that understand what work and, you know, will be reasonable about it. Or you can, you know, hang out with the, I guess, the, uh, the unwashed masses. Let me ask you this. Off the top of your head, and I sort of have one in mind, but I, I, 
kind of like to see where you go with it. Can you think of any instance of something is a bad idea or maybe not a great idea or not the best solution to a problem and then fast forward 10, 15, maybe 20 years and either training methodology has changed or technology has improved and something that started as a meh is like, okay, cool, this works now. Can you can you think of anything like that? Well, I would say several things along that line on the technology. I think weapon-mounted lights are that way. Uh, you can go back to the earliest, early 20th century and find weapon-mounted lights. It's just that with the technology they had as far as power source, light bulbs, stuff like that, uh, they weren't really viable. So I would say weapon-mounted lights on that are, are probably an example. Um, you know, the early red dots that we ran on weapons were not entirely reliable. You know, Aimpoint was the first, I think, real big game changer. With I think it was like the 2000 model, right? That uh, that was the first time you really see them beginning to be used outside of, you know, at least as far as Aimpoints. You know, you do have the the uh, the OEG sites for the Sante Raiders, you know, in the late 60s again, early 70s. I can't remember when that raid was. So some of the technology stuff kind of has come along. Um, some of it has gotten recycled. You know, um, back in the revolver days, we all had high-vis front sights on our pistols. Like, literally, you know, on the, uh, you could, you know, uh, there was a catch system. You could push a you know, button with, like, the, the tip of a handcuff key and swap out your front sight. And most guys did that or painted their front sights. Well, when night sights came along, everybody was like, thought this was the best thing since sliced bread. So all of a sudden, we weren't using that super high-vis sight that tends to draw your eye to it. Well, here we are, you know, 20 years after that has been become popularized, and now we've kind of reached this equilibrium of where we have both. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think there's definitely been some stuff that has kind of caught up as well. And to a certain degree, I would even think that two-handed eye-level shooting has been, is, is a technique that the technology, as it's become better implemented, has allowed to take place. Again, if Trujicon HDXRs had ex when Ashkin was patrolling the border, he would have had those on his gun. And uh, he would have been even more of a serial killer with a badge. Well, and if you want to talk about like pistol mounted or long gun mounted optics, I think he would have been a fan of those as well, probably after he actually got to play with them. So that that's an interesting sort of point. One of the ones that actually jumps out to me the most as far as a thing that people think is new that's not new at all and is a little bit different would actually be AIWB carry. And a lot of people, and I don't know if you want to get into this conversation or not, but it's an interesting topic to me because, you know, I, I see quite a few advantages to it. I also acknowledge there are one or two incredibly major drawbacks, but if you talk to some people that have been around a while, they're always a little more, not always, but oftentimes a little more reticent with that particular carry method because it's not the first time they've seen it. And when it was popular before, I think there were some, I guess, layers of security that had not necessarily been implemented inside of either product design or more specifically training TTPs um, that resulted in a lot more negative outcomes. Do you, do you want to speak to that at all or not so much? Well, I, I think it comes back to, again, some of the technology of the guns at the time. If you look at, you know, because I'm, I'm not sure you want, how far you want to go down the historic bunny hole, but, you know, the first time I've really seen AIWB mentioned and formalized 
was Bruce Nelson when he was a, a narc out in California, I want to say in the 70s. And that was set up to allow the gun to be carried where casual frisking would not find it. Um, I, mean, I can't remember what year I did a class with Scotty Reitz, but it was the early 2000s. And he mentioned by using a lot of AIWB carry because it works so well in casual outdoor clothing. The issue I think that we have is uh, when AIWB was popular back then, you were either running a semi-automatic with a manual safety, you know, a 1911 typically, maybe a Browning high power, or you were running a double action revolver that had a heavier draw weight. So I think that where the, you know, when we went to, um, for like, I call them soulless plastic pistols. I mean, I'm not sure what distinguishes a Glock from an M&P, from a 320, from a VP9. I mean, they're all soulless plastic pistols, but, you know, the one thing they don't have in common is a manual safety unless you, you know, deliberately pick a model with it, right? So, you know, I think a lot of the consternation with AIWB and its return has, number one, not understanding the historical context from which it arose, but also trying to figure out how to implement it with a pistol that is not inherently as resistant to uh, negligent discharges as the historical pistols that would have been used in that carry method would have been. Well, and the other thing that strikes me too, and this is, we got about a minute left. So here, let's just do this. Let's go to break. And then I, I want to pick up from where you just left off. Uh, Cause otherwise this is going to spiral and blah, 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 blah. And I won't hit my time mark. Anyway, we're talking with John Hearn. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-used rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment also brought to you by Centurion Arms. Even if you're just a cook, a lowly, lowly cook, or you call in tactical nukes from your couch every night with ease, you need to know that your life-saving equipment is going to work, and Centurion Arms knows it too. Veteran-owned and operated Centurion Arms is dedicated to producing firearms, parts, and accessories with an outstanding level of quality, functionality, and precision at prices you can afford. Whether you just need a new rail or barrel or something else to finish off your latest build, or maybe you just want to take all the guesswork out and buy a complete rifle, Centurion Arms has got what you need and knows that when you need it, you need it to work. Visit CenturionArms.com today to check out all their awesome products. Centurion Arms, hard-used rifles and accessories at easy day prices. So you were you were sort of talking about like the historical context and the types of guns people carried and then switching over to guns that are much easier to make fire. And that's either a positive or a negative, depending on the context and whether or not you want it to be firing in that particular instance. But also it strikes me, too, that our concept of modern firearm safety is a relatively new invention. And I would say that firearm safety specifically is something that, you know, our understanding of firearm safety is something that's only existed for the last, what, 40 years, maybe, maybe 50. Yeah, I think depending on where you go back, I think, you know, Cooper initially put down the three rules in the late 70s. It was quickly admitted to the four rules uh, after the school had just been open for a few years. Um, the other thing I'd say is I have not read them myself, but I have a, you know, a friend that has a U.S. Army Cavalry model, uh, sorry, manual from like 1917, I think was the year. And essentially the, the rules are um, incorporated there fairly plainly, right? So, again, I think it's um, 
our adherence to those rules. You know, I think that uh, back in the day, if you had a revolver that had the cylinder swung open, if you had a pistol with the slide locked open, I think probably people would have been more tolerant of, you know, maybe perhaps being muzzled by a device like that. But I, again, that basic form of, you know, you know, muzzle awareness and trigger finger goes back. You can at least find it um, written down. Now, whether people actually did it or not is a completely different matter because I think we all know that sometimes what the manual says and what you actually do can be two different things. Right. Well, and I have a, I have a family picture where it is two members of, of a very elite unit at the time sitting in a barracks where one of them has got a single-action army pointed at the other one's head, cocked. I know it's loaded because I spoke to the person that was one of the people in the photo, pointed at the other one's head while the other one has like a Dan Wesson three fifty seven Magnum buried in, in, in the stomach of the other individual. Again, cocked, fi- fingers on triggers and stuff like that, loaded guns. And this is just like a, a thing that they, you know, for a laugh, let's get this picture, right? And and I see that, and I am horrified to a level that is difficult for me to even describe, right? And then if you look back at some of the films that we see, and it's it's really incredible the the shooting that's being displayed, but you've got stuff of like people shooting cigarettes or pieces of chalk out of other people's mouths, or you know what I mean, fingers like held in between knuckles, stuff like that. So it seems like there was a much more lackadaisical attitude about that sort of thing. And I wonder how much that sort of attitude played into some of the negative outcomes that you saw with, you know, inside of that sort of world. Like how does that affect our outlook and and how we're doing things? And... Does the question kind of make sense or like where I'm trying to go with it? Oh, I think absolutely. I think that um, it helps to remember that this this gun, these are, we're talking about changes in our gun culture. And our gun culture is part of our larger culture. And if you look at what's been happening, you know, realistically ever since, you know, for almost the same time frame, is that we as a country have becoming more and more risk averse. I don't know about you, and maybe this explains some of the, you know, my brain damage, but we didn't have bicycle helmets when we grew up. You know, I wasn't in a car seat or anything like that. And because, you know, there's a bunch of cultural drivers of this between lawyers to something as simple as people having fewer kids. You know, when you have when you had eight kids and you lost one, I mean, it was sad, but necessarily wasn't the end of the world. But when you only got one or two kids and you lose one of them, then all of a sudden you're a lot more risk averse. And I think that we have had a huge sea change as far as what we consider acceptable risk um, in our society, you know. There are people that, oh, my God, I've got to buy a a vehicle from this year because it has the latest, greatest safety features. Yet, you know, when they were a kid growing up, they laid up on the back deck of the car um, and waved at passing vehicles. So I think this this change in the gun culture, change in the gun culture is just emblematic of this larger change in our culture and us becoming more risk averse. Well, and it strikes me that that can be a good thing, and it can also be a bad thing, depending on what we're talking about and things like that. But it certainly impacts in my mind, you know, ways to take something that maybe historically had a, well, it, it had, so this is an interesting thing. It had the same level of risk, but maybe people hadn't 
even thought of ways to try and mitigate that risk because mitigating risk wasn't a thing that was something we were trying to do almost in certain areas. But what what well, you... again, I think it's an an acceptance and there's also, you know, never never forget the, the cool factor, right? You know, because you know, we sit there and we're balancing out, well, should I shoot the cigarette out of my friend's mouth? You know, I think that our acceptance of, hey, that's pretty cool, let's do that, that's kind of gone away some. Uh, we probably wouldn't be doing that as much. I mean, and I'm not trying to defend the actions, but to be fair, you know, some of those videos we're talking about are the, you know, the Los Angeles, I think it was the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department pistol team. So these aren't your average street cops. These are guys that are shooting, you know, bullseyes at 50 yards. Right. So, you know, realistically, it was a shot that was certainly well within their capabilities. Whether it was a smart shot is something that for them, that was a reasonable risk. For us, I think this, you know, this day and age, uh, it's not a reasonable risk. Some of this is experience to stuff. So you talk about um, people that have been in this business a long time. I have a friend who is opposed to any kind of a downrange drill, uh, not necessarily for safety rule violations, but he's seen enough 1911s break Sears and go full auto that for him the, the risk of a weapon malfunction uh, is too great to make that a risk-reward option worth doing, as opposed to maybe somebody who um, isn't carrying a 1911 who hasn't seen all those things go wrong. You know, if you look at, you know, um, I'm not a high-speed ninja by any stretch of the imagination, but some of the guys that are the most draconian uh, about these critical safety measures are the guys at the pointiest end of the spears. I mean, if you look at the guys that have come out of, you know, for lack of a better word, Delta, I mean, those trainers are obsessive about safety. And, you know, uh, you know something that most of us would not do, such as, you know, engaging the manual safety when they're performing an emergency reload, because they've been in the... Uh, the poop storm long enough to see how things, how badly things can go. So I'm pretty sure that those are all hard won lessons that they've picked up. So, you know, if the guys at the, the pointiest tip of the spear are this obsessive about safety, I think we'll probably head it in the right direction. Right. And, and, and this is all just for the, and I'm thinking of one individual in particular who I respect quite a bit that is very anti AIWB. And the reason he's anti AIWB, AIWB as he's lost two very good friends, um, I, I believe. And, and so I'm, I'm, you know, if I'm mistaken about the facts and he happens to, to hear this and figures out that I'm talking about him, I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful at all. I'm, I'm trying to relay a point of view and, and acknowledge and accept that point of view. He's very anti-AIWB because he's seen two very negative outcomes from that. And then, you know, when I have that conversation, that's the only way I carry. And I actually think that it's superior to a lot of other methods from a safety perspective if you're doing the things that you need to do to mitigate that risk. And it's interesting to me how those, those two wildly different perspectives can exist and how often we don't acknowledge where those perspectives are coming from for or against, you know. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the whole problem. Once you have a negative experience like that, um, you're going to be pretty hardwired against that in the future. And I think that part of it has just been is that, you know, as we, as AIWB was revived, you know, I would say argue first by Gomez and then by uh, Todd, um, we've developed TTPs to mitigate a lot of these issues. Exactly. So, you know, we, we pretty much know, um, you know, we're going to thrust our hips forward. We're going to, you know, holster the weapon in such a way that if the worst thing happens, it's still okay. I mean, is it ideal? No, but I'm not sure that any ND near, at or near the holster is ideal, right? So the, the fact that we've developed TT, you know, TTPs to mitigate these issues, and as long as you're following them, is the other caveat, uh, 
yeah. then, yeah, that becomes a viable option. Well, and the thing, too, is that people don't like to acknowledge their own fallibi- fallibility and also don't like to acknowledge that even if we reduce a failure rate to 0.001%, which, frankly, is a, is a really good failure rate, like, good for us. Like, if we could remove, if we could get a failure rate down to 0.001%, that, that is an incredibly generous goal. Like, excuse me, that is an incredibly difficult goal to achieve. Most failure rates are higher than that. But when you, when you zoom out and say, you know, if we do something 10,000 or 100,000 times, and even with, like a 99.999% success rate, you know, that's still, if, if we don't layer in things is a a greater than one occurrence of something that could absolutely kill you. Right. Well, and I think it also goes to the fact that these are dangerous weapons. Yeah. And there is no, you know, Farnham was very famous. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but you know, there is no safe way to practice something that is inherently deadly. Right. All we can do is implement reasonable mitigations to deal with this stuff. But, I mean, uh, if you're worried about a 0% failure rate with your firearms, I would maybe suggest taking up bowling. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Hey, we're at the end of the show. Um, It went quick. If people want to listen to more of your nerdery or, even better, come take a class with you, where can they do that at? All right, so 2021 is going to be my slow rollout of a couple of road classes I'm trying to do. So uh, thanks to the, the wonderful Tiffany Johnson, I now have my very own website. If you go to jhern.com, and hern is spelled H-E-A-R-N-E at the end, jhern.com, uh, that's going to be the splash page. I'll have some upcoming course dates coming up. Uh, right now the only thing I have um, as an open enrollment class is I'm planning on being in Oklahoma uh, April 23rd, 24th, and 25th. That'll be a, a, a neat collection of classes, a short-range carving class, the full eight-hour lecture on who wins, who loses, and why, combined with a new class I'm rolling out called uh, Cognitive Pistol and Tactical Anatomy. So jhern.com uh, should have a list of all the upcoming classes as I get stuff formalized and go from there. I am super excited, and I'm going to try my very best to be at those classes in April. And I need to... I need to check my, my calendar, but I think I can do it. And if I can, I am I'm super, super excited. But, John, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having you back on the show next week because we're getting ready to record another one. So I will, I will get back with you in a second. Hey, guys, make sure you check out our website, BallisticRadio.com, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. And, hey, keep leaving those five-star review on iTunes. If you think we've earned it, it really helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe. See you next week.